Okay, I'm obsessed with Audible because it lets you enjoy all of your audio entertainment in one app. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. And with female writers and heroines, celebrity narration, multicast productions, Audible has you covered for every type of excitement that you're looking for, including true crime and mystery. And I know all of you love that too. For example, right now, I'm listening to None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash reality life or text reality life to 500 500. That's audible.com slash reality life or text reality life to 500 500. With four daughters and two on a dance team, I can tell you we go through a lot of mascara in my house, but I'm crazy about L'Oreal Paris new Panorama Mascara, which catches every lash for corner to corner for maximum volume. If you're looking for a new high-end mascara without breaking the bank, this is yours. The new L'Oreal Paris Panorama Mascara gives you a high-end lash look in a premium gold luxe packaging. I've been using it for about two weeks now, and I feel like my eye has completely opened up, and the girls are crazy about it too. They've got a tapered brush to catch every lash, one of the best mascara wands that I've ever used. And like I said, this luxe appearance of this gold package you got to get it. You can buy Panorama Mascara on Amazon today. L'Oreal Paris New Panorama Mascara. You're going to love it. The Amazing Kate Casey. Welcome back to another episode of Reality Life with Kate Casey. Hope that you had a great week. And if you listened to my episode on Tuesday, my must-watch episode, there were two things that I listed, a reality show and a docu-series that you have to watch this week. The first is Hillsong, a mega church exposed on Discovery+. Plus. This three-part docuseries will pull the curtain back and give viewers a look into the world of Hillsong. Hillsong is a mega church with more than 150,000 global members that's recently come under scrutiny. The series will profile numerous ex-members of the church who've come forward en masse to share harrowing allegations of the trauma abuse, financial, and labor exploitation, and homophobia that created a culture of chaos at Hillsong. That premieres Thursday, March 24th. And then you should also check out American Song Contest on NBC. This features live original music performances representing artists from all 50 states, five U.S. territories, and D.C. competing to win the country's vote for the best original song. It is an eight-week live event hosted by Kelly Clarkson and Snoop Dogg. This Italian journalist in 1955 was working at the state broadcasting company and proposed this idea that blossomed into a song competition. Among the countries of Europe, with this idea of uniting these countries a little over a decade after the end of World War II, the Eurovision Song Contest has been presented every year since 1956, with the exception of 2020 because of COVID-19. This show has amassed millions of viewers, legions of fans worldwide. It was just spoofed in a movie last year starring Will Ferrell. Surprisingly, that show has had a very low profile in America, and so now it is here. One of the show's most famous winners was ABBA. So again, you got to check it out, American Song Contest, NBC. I hope that you've also been watching Byron Bay's on Netflix. That's about a group of friends, influencers, and artists in Byron Bay, Australia. In this episode, my friend Jacques, who's a podcast host and a Daily Mail Australia reporter, reviews it. He's got great boots on the ground story. 
And I just think it's so great to hear how different countries around the globe look at their own reality shows and those in other countries as well. In this episode, I interview a director of a very moving documentary that I want everybody to watch. And it reminded me of the movie Philomena. Philomena is now available on Hulu. It's a movie that I often note is one of my favorites. It's one of those movies that every single time I watch it, I become so emotional. In 1952, Irish teenager Philomena Lee, played by Judi Dench, became pregnant out of wedlock and was sent to a convent. When her baby Anthony was a toddler, the nuns took Philomena's child away from her and put him up for adoption in the United States. For the next 50 years, she searched tirelessly for her son. And when former BBC correspondent Martin Sixsmith, played by Steve Coogan, learned of her story, he became her ally. They traveled together to America to find Anthony and come unexpectedly close in the process. This is based on a true story. Philomena Lee had kept that secret for nearly 50 years. She just made love to a handsome young man at a country fair. And as a pregnant teenager, she was sent to this convent in Rose Korea County, Limerick in 1952. And there she was humiliated by the nuns who had viewed her as a fallen woman deserving of God's wrath for her sexual promiscuity. Well, in reality, she was just like many very young, innocent teenagers of that time who knew almost nothing about sex or how babies were even made. Giving birth to her son was a tormenting process for her. One of the nuns listened to her cries and said, the pain is your penance. For three years, this teenager cherished the one hour each day that she was allowed with her son, whom she had named Anthony. The rest of the time, she and the other women, young mothers, labored in a sweatshop laundry. One day, she watched helplessly from an upstairs window as her three-year-old son was taken away by two strangers. From then on, not a day passed where she did not think about Anthony. A visit to the convent yielded no information, only a reminder that she had signed away her rights to any information about her son. So it was clear to Martin that the nuns were trying to keep the past activities of the place a secret, including the money they got for basically selling babies into adoption. Through government birth and travel records, he was able to determine that Anthony was adopted by an American couple and was taken to the U.S., and he persuaded Philomena to join him on a trip to Washington, D.C. This story of Philomena Lee touched me because I have a relative who gave birth to a baby while in a mother and baby home in America. So when I received an email about a new documentary called The Missing Children, it piqued my interest immediately. At the Tuam Mother and Baby Home in Ireland, 796 children born to unwed mothers have disappeared. The bodies of some have been found in a sewage tank. And in this feature-length edition of the BAFTA-winning Exposure Strand, The Missing Children tells the stories of some of the children who survived life at the home as well as the search to uncover the truth about what happened to those who disappeared. Some still recall the cruelty of nuns. Others were adopted to America and only are now discovering relations in Ireland and the UK. And through the personal narratives of survivors, adoptees, and the women who pieced together the evidence that has shaken Ireland to its core, leading to an unprecedented apology from the Irish state. The Missing Children uncovers the truth of a shocking story which continues to affect the lives of many in Ireland, the U.S., Canada, Australia, the U.K. You can watch this documentary on Topic.com, which is also available to U.S. and Canadian audiences on that website. 
but you can also watch it on Apple TV and iOS, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Android and Android TV, Samsung, Apple TV channels, Roku premium channels, Amazon Prime Video channels, and Comcast through Xfinity X1, Xfinity Flex, and X-Class TV. This is my interview with the director, Tanya Steven. I am telling you, I was so moved by the story. And it's one of those documentaries that you will find yourself Googling as you watch it, pausing it, going back, researching, looking at the timeline. I go through the timeline in my interview with her, but I just want you to think of all of the women that went through those homes. So many teenagers who really didn't know anything about sex. They were basically ignored by their families and told to keep that secret buried deep within them for many, many years. So many dying in their 70s, 80s, 90s, harboring that secret, never knowing what happened to their children. And I know that it's really touches my heart. And you just hope that there's some relief for some of their pain and that others will be connected with the help of DNA search databases. And that we can put this piece of history behind us, but obviously learn from it. Again, it is called The Missing Children, and you can find that on topic.com, but also on many different um, platforms, including Apple TV and Amazon Prime. I know that you will love it as much as I do. It's called The Missing Children. And again, I will have Jacques in my episode talking about Byron Bays, and you've got to check out the Hillsong docuseries and American Song Contest. So here we go. Two years ago for my birthday, my friend Carlene got me the most perfect birthday gift, a Viore jogger. Since then, it's become a staple in my wardrobe. To know me is to know I love Viore joggers. And here's why I love it. The product is incredibly versatile. It can be used for just about any activity like running, training, swimming, yoga, but also awesome for lounging or weekend errands. You will love the way you look in all Viore clothing. And ordering your new favorite items could not be easier. Their website will showcase all the great colors and for all of their soft and well-made clothes. And here's another reason I love it. Viore is 100% offsetting their carbon footprint. They're also reducing and offsetting 100% of their plastic footprint from 2019 and beyond. And they are utilizing better sustainable materials for their products, empowering your best active life. And for men, know that my husband loves Viore pants too. They're perfect for running and his go-to travel pant. Viore is an investment in your happiness. And for my listeners, they are offering, get this, 20% off your first purchase. Get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet at viore.com backslash Kate. That's V-U-O-R-I.com slash Kate. Not only will you receive 20% off your first purchase, but enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75 and free returns. Go to viore.com backslash Kate and discover the versatility of Viore clothing. I know everybody right now is on a health kick, and that's why I want to tell you about Row Body Program. Row provides access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market. The Row Body Program pairs a weekly shot with healthy lifestyle changes, so you can lose 15 to 20% of your weight in a year on average and actually keep it off. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Row to help them lose weight. It could be you too. 
Rose Body program members have support throughout the process. Rose partner handles all of the insurance paperwork to help get medication covered. If eligible for medication, patients have access to the provider on demand for any questions. And you can sign up online from the comfort of your own home. And this means no scheduling a doctor's appointment, no commute to the doctor's office, and no waiting rooms. Average weight loss is 15 to 20% in one year with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to row.com slash KKC. Sign up today and you're going to pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash KKC. With DoorDash, there's something for everyone. You need a birthday gift? Check. Need to stock up on meals, sides, and drinks that your family loves? Also check. Pet ran out of food again? They've got it. Wellness essentials need a restock? It's a good thing they've got those too. The DoorDash app allows you to customize, substitute, schedule, and track your orders, as well as communicate with your shopper while receiving real-time updates. This has been a huge game changer for myself and for our family. Millions of people trust DoorDash for groceries, pet supplies, gifts, well-being, and more, and you should too. Shop with DoorDash and enjoy big savings. Use code KATECASEY to get 50% off, up to $10 value on $15 minimum subtotal on your next convenience, grocery or retail order. For eligible users only, terms apply. Tanya, I am telling you, I watched this documentary. I haven't stopped thinking about it since then. I am so excited that I've tracked you down. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Well, this story, as I said, has stayed with me. Um, can, can you tell me a little bit about how you first heard the story and how the project was developed? So the story broke in 2014 initially, and it did go around the world. Um, journalist Alison O'Reilly had come across the story that had been um, discovered by this local historian, Catherine Corliss, who had been trying to work out where hundreds of children who had died had actually been buried. So when Alison O'Reilly broke the story, it went all around the world on the Mail Online. And it was a story that we in the UK read about and it was horrifying. Um, but I think it was, it's one of those news stories that comes up and you think, oh, well, that's going to be investigated. The police are going to get involved. They will do an excavation. They'll work out whether the children are there. Um, and like many news stories, there's never really a follow-up to it. So you sort of see the headlines, you're there when the story breaks, you read about it, and then, yeah, I suppose most people just assumed that it had been dealt with by the Irish government. Um, and in 2017, the story came out again because they had done a just a test excavation of the sewage tanks and they had discovered that there were a significant quantity of human remains, but still no full investigation. So it was in 2018, so it's four years after that story broke, I read an article about a woman called Annette Mackay, who is features in our series. And she lives in the UK, just a train ride away from me. And she had recently discovered that she was not her mother's oldest child, wow. but her mum had had a little girl before her in a mother and baby home and had kept that secret for years. I mean, she was in her 70s and very soon to then get dementia after that. And she told Annette her secret. But Annette 
didn't know where her sister was buried, assumed she had a little grave somewhere, you know, was was devastated to know that, but hadn't, just had no idea really about what she was going to find out next. When the story broke about the chewing babies and that they could be buried in a sewage tank, they published a list of all the names of the 796 children who were believed to be in the, the sewage tank. And Annette saw her sister's name on that list. Wow. So she, in her 60s, you know, living a normal life in England, suddenly had this horrifying story to deal with of what had happened to her sister. How had her sister ended up, you know, dead, potentially in a sewage tank? And actually what this, what her, the interview in this article was saying was, did she really believe that her sister had died? Because she'd also started doing some research into the number of children who were trafficked to America. And she had heard a family rumor that her, that a little girl had been adopted. So she was just left kind of reeling with these questions. And um, I just thought her story was so extraordinary. And I realized, of course, through her story that the grave hadn't been dealt with and um I just thought it was extraordinary so I I called her the day that I read the article and I said can I come and see you tomorrow she said yeah absolutely it was so spontaneous um and I went up I have a very um compact sort of kit with my camera and everything and I just went up on the train um and we spent the whole afternoon together and I just started filming her story straight away um and I think what really struck me was her sort of sense of outrage and disbelief that, that, that this grave had not, it's not a grave, it's, you know, that this site had not been investigated and dealt with. Um, and she, because she's British, actually, she was saying, surely, you know, in the UK, the police would have to have gone in and excavated. Um, and she was saying, you know, how could this not have happened in Ireland? Um, so I was just very moved by her story. And on my way home, I sent her an email and I said, look, I will get this film made. We will make this film together. I promise you, you know, the fact that there wasn't another filmmaker already following her story. I just couldn't believe that. And I said, you know, it might take me a few months but we are definitely going to make this film um, and we're definitely going to get the story out there. Um, and at that time, I thought I'd be filming with her until we had an answer about her sister. Um, but um, that is still yet to happen. So in this case, the Bon Secours Mother and Baby Home operated between 1925 and 1961. And it was for unmarried mothers and their children the home was run by those sisters, a religious order of Catholic nuns, and operated the Grove Hospital in the town. Unmarried pregnant women were sent to the home to give birth. Women who became pregnant outside of marriage were widely viewed, I'm assuming not just in Ireland, but all over the world, as shameful and socially unacceptable throughout most of the 20th century. For a woman to be pregnant outside of wedlock was seen as extremely shameful um, in the eyes of the Catholic Church, but also the Anglican Church. I mean, it was certainly something that was prevalent in the UK, also in America and Canada and Australia. Um, 
and mother and baby homes were a way to hide that shame. So it was a, a place, they were places for women to go and have their children in secret, leave their children with the nuns, and then go back to their life in some way. Also having worked to pay off their so-called sin. So I think what is so extraordinary, and even after watching Philomena, I don't think I had realized how widespread the system of mother and baby homes was. Um, You know, they were dotted all over Ireland, certainly. And it's, I think, because, because of the shame, these were secrets. They were family secrets. So people would know about them in families, but it wasn't talked about, which meant that really for decades, people didn't really know what was happening, you know, to these women and what happened in mother and baby homes. So Philomena was, you know, really probably the first time that it became very widely known that there were mother and baby homes. And I think that story was incredibly powerful in beginning to unlock that story. The children who survived in the Chew mother and baby home would have either been adopted to America or within Ireland, or they would have been fostered out. Most of them would have been fostered out to local farming families um, as, as free labor. It would be a wow. place that they could live but it also meant that um, they had to work. Even, I mean, boys could be sent as young as five years old, girls slightly older. So um, those are the, the, the people who are in our film who have memories of the home are adults now who would have grown up in fostered kind of fostered to families. Um, locally and they kept their secret for years and years and years um, because it was a stigma to have been born in a mother and baby home and um, you know I've, I've had some of those men in particular tell me that you know they would go to dances you know like an evening out where they would dance with local girls um, and if any of those young women knew that they had come from mother and baby home, then they wouldn't have wanted to dance with them. So, you know, it was something that was just simply not talked about. And if people knew, you know, they would be bullied for it. Um, So really, the people who were in our film hadn't really hadn't gone public at all or given interviews or talked about their experiences. Um, and then when the story did break in, in 2014, some of them began to come forward um, and, and speak. But the other thing that was very notable was that they most of them didn't have any memories or very few memories of those first five years in the home. So when I began to interview people, we were really, obviously really wanted to understand what it was like. Um, and it was a very gradual process, I think. So um, people had few memories and those memories were very important. And 
there was one person in particular that we we did film with, but in the end, she couldn't take part in the film really for mental health reasons. So yeah, right. we had m- more research than we were able to put in the film. But um, the conditions in those homes were were very harsh. And one of the themes that comes across very strongly is how little they were fed. So hunger and thirst come through as a as a major theme. Um, and Ireland was poor at the time, but the, the this order of nuns had, you know, a garden in which they grew vegetables. They they actually were they they weren't poor themselves. Um, and there was there was food to be had, but because these children were seen as second class citizens, they just were fed very rudimentary food probably not enough in a lot of cases. The word marasmus, which is malnourishment really, comes up in a lot of the death certificates. So it does seem as if some children died from lack of nourishment. Um, Also, the lack of any sort of love or care or warmth. I mean, these children have been taken away from their mothers either at the age of one or, or before that. Um, and even when the mothers were working in the home, um, which was usually for the first year of the child's life, they weren't allowed to be with their child um, and care for their child. They were supposed to be doing the laundry or cleaning. And um, so those children were really deprived of, of care. And um you know, sometimes they talk about just being told to stay in their bed or their cot all day long, you know, mm. just kind of rocking themselves um, or not being allowed to play outside um, or looking at the sky through the window and not knowing what trees were. Um, some of the survivors talk about when they left the home, how terrifying it was to see animals because they'd never seen an animal before. So they were really very institutionalized um, and, you know, mistreated. I mean, I haven't even spoken about the violence, but um, Pat Duffy, who's in our series, lovely, lovely man, um, has a speech impediment because his ears were hit so hard by the nuns that he, he his ears got damaged and then infected and um he now um can't hear very well and that damaged his speech as well so you know i think there was a level of brutality i mean i am sure that there were good nuns and kind nuns there um and people have said that but it sounds as though you know it was a place full of small children mm-hmm. being you know, separated from their mothers daily and then permanently. It's it's a recipe for disaster, really. I mean, it's difficult enough looking after small children when you're their mum. Right. You know. Um, so just a terrible system. Were any of the women able to pay back their debts and and then take their children home with them? Or was it just expected that once the baby was born into a mother and baby home that they would no longer be able to parent their child? 
I think it was it was mainly that they that they couldn't parent their child, but some women probably who were more middle class, more affluent. Um, I mean, I think a certain number of women probably were able to keep their children, but on the whole, the family, their own families wouldn't have wanted them to keep their child because of the shame. Right. So it wasn't just about paying your debt. Um, I mean, I haven't, I, it's not, that's not something I can really speak about because I haven't really come across any women who are able to keep their children. You know, it, 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 I mean, and I have spoken to mothers from other mother and baby homes who came from, you know, well-off families mm-hmm. who still went to these mother and baby homes. There's one woman I spoke to actually, interestingly, she didn't have to do the hard labor because she came from a more affluent family. So perhaps her parents were paying for her not to do the hard labor, but she still had to give up her child. And the shame, the shame that they carry, the secrecy. It's it's really interesting how mothers in their 70s and 80s still are in some ways keeping this secret because of the shame, the shame that they still carry all those years later. It's just, it's really just so heartbreaking on so many levels. Now, this home shut down in 1961, fall into a dilapidated state, and the remaining residents were transferred to similar homes around the country. And then in 1972, following the demolition of the home, construction work began to create a new council-owned housing estate in the area. What is the feeling that you got from the people that live in that community? When the news got out, that there were hundreds of children who had died in this home and that they could be buried in a sewage tank that is hidden. I mean, it's under the ground, so you wouldn't know it was there except for old maps and so on. Um, I think initially people didn't want to believe it or didn't feel that that area should be disturbed but over the course of time, I think the community has changed. There's still, there's still, um, I mean, there's some people who still feel that the babies should be left where they are, really. Right. But a lot of people now have come on board with the family members and the survivors and um, have been incredibly supportive and, you know, decorated the site and raised money to, um, to pay tribute to the children, you know, through a kind of memorial mm-hmm. um, and and want, in a way, yes, want the children to be buried with dignity. So there's, we filmed a, a really lovely lantern relay um, that was really paying tribute to the children who had died and people walked for miles and miles, um, like a relay, mm-hmm. handing a lantern to each other and reading out oh, the wow. names of children who died each year along the way it was a really beautiful thing actually to film um and then eventually brought the lantern to the memorial garden where the sewage tank is beneath the ground um and laid the lantern there and so there's a lot of love and support I think for getting justice for these babies and you know giving them some dignity now but mm-hmm. um but it's been yes I mean for a town it's just an ordinary town in yeah. Galway in the west of Ireland you know and people would have known that there had been a mother and baby home but 
that's quite a while ago now. So I don't think people were expecting a story like this to come out of a town like that. To say nothing of the two young boys that in 1975 discovered those skeletal remains, I kept thinking about them also and how that must have changed the trajectory of their lives um, being witness to that. Um, it's just, again, it's, it's another heartbreaking part of it. Following, in June of 2014, following weeks of speculation over the fate of the babies, the Irish government ordered a nationwide commission of investigation into the mother and baby homes. What has happened since then? Um, and, and obviously, this has probably been incredibly shocking for people to understand the, the complexity of this story and just how much bigger it is than just this one home. So the Commission of Investigation is it's a, a really important part of the story um, for what it did and for what it didn't do. So. When um, when the story broke, um, eventually the Irish government decided to investigate by setting up a separate, an independent kind of committee that would, an independent team that would um, investigate a selection of mother and baby homes. And they gathered a lot of information. This had never happened in Ireland before. This was you know, a nationwide system that had never been investigated in any way. It's not something that's taught in schools. It's not something that has appeared in, you know, high-profile documentaries. I mean, Philomena is really the only feature film drama that touches on this subject. I mean, it, it is about the subject, but it doesn't look at the conditions in the homes or you know, I think at the time of Philomena, there was no idea that, I mean, thousands of children died in these homes. So the commission did gather a lot of documents and a lot of facts, but it took five years. And in that time, they didn't allow any access to any of the information that they were gathering. And at the end of those five years, after many delays, they published a report that many of the survivors and the family members, and we're talking survivors of, you know, many, many mother and baby homes, not just Chewham, felt wasn't representative of the truth. So it made claims such as um, they couldn't find evidence that children had been forcibly taken from their mothers or they couldn't prove or disprove that money had been a factor in the adoption of children from Ireland to America. And so while we were making this film, that report came out. So it was published in January 2021. And we were, we had done two years of development on this and we were just going full steam into production. And I said, we are going to show in this series that both of those things are, we can definitely prove both of those things. We can show that children were forcibly taken from their mothers and we can show that money was a factor in the adoption of children from Ireland to America. Um, and we have to show that in this documentary because you can't have that going down as some historical document that people might believe. Mm -hmm. So... Alongside us making the film, there was an alternative report that was written um, 
that was uh, written by human rights lawyers, survivors, um, campaigning groups, um, because they also didn't want the wrong history to be told or an incorrect history to be told. And so in, in response to the final report, the Sisters of Bon Secure offered their profound apologies to all the women and children who lived at Tuam home, their families, and to the people of Ireland, and the order admitted its nuns did not live up to our Christianity when running the home. We acknowledge in particular that infants and children who died at the home were buried in a disrespectful and unacceptable way. For all that, we are deeply sorry, the sisters added, and their spokesman confirmed that the order would take part in a redress scheme. I wondered, given the sensitivity of this subject, how hard was it for you to find sources, especially those willing to be on camera? And did you get any feedback from sisters um, that were working at that home or were involved with the um, with the order at that time? So I did write to the Bon Secours and told them the film that we were making and requested an interview. And we got a reply back from their PR agency saying they declined to be interviewed. It was a very short message, um, which is a shame because I think it would have been valuable to speak to them even though they say that there is nobody alive from their order who um, would have any memories of the home. When the story had broken in 2014, they said that they were there were only two nuns alive who had worked in the home, and neither of them had capacity to, um, to be interviewed or to tell their story. So... We knew at that time that two of the nuns were alive. We also know that they replied to a request from Anna Corrigan, who has two missing brothers, and she asked where they were buried. And they said one of them in particular is most likely to be buried in that area, which is now known to be where the sewage tanks are. Mm -hmm. So they wrote to her with that information. But in our process of making the film, we gave them a right to reply to the film. We sent them the film and they were able to watch it and, and reply to the allegations. Well, sorry, I don't know if they, no, to scrap that. They didn't watch the film. We, sent, we must have sent them a list. Our lawyer sent them a list of the allegations made in the film. Um, so they're, in their response to us and their right of reply, they said that they had given all of their documents to the Commission of Investigation and therefore they had no knowledge of what had happened to the children. Everything that they had, they had given to the Commission. Which is slightly odd because, of course, if you're going to give someone some documents, you could very easily keep a copy yourself, you know, and it seems unlikely that they would have no idea I would have thought where, where, where children are buried. And also in their right of reply, they said that they agreed with the theory that children's remains could be buried around the wider site, under the playground, in the verges, that there could be children's remains in a much wider area. So they must have other knowledge of where children are buried if they could make that statement. So frustrating. And were you ever made aware of 
or given leads about children who may have been listed or never tracked, likely adopted by families in America. So they're in America and they have no idea that they were born into a mother and baby home in Ireland. I spent a long time researching this and I really wanted to show that potentially some children could have been recorded as having died, but actually have been trafficked to America. Mm. Um, partly because that would be also a more hopeful story for people like Annette, whose sister is on the list of the 796. How much better for her if she knew that her sister was actually alive and well in America? Um, but also, you know, it's the theory about Chewham that um, partly drove the story, you know, um, but it's extremely difficult to prove because documents have been changed and falsified and destroyed. So when we found Kathy in America, Kathy who was adopted from Chewham um, in the late 50s and um, by parents who, American parents who desperately wanted her and loved her and, you know, waited years really to be able to bring her to the States. Um, her story was incredible because she had a flight case of letters between her adoptive parents and the nuns. It was extraordinary. Her parents kept the copy of the letters that they wrote to the nuns um, and kept the, all the letters that the nuns sent back. Um, and she had some photographs and she had Super 8 footage. So her adoptive father had a Super 8 camera. He was not a great um, cameraman, unfortunately. Very shaky footage, but he filmed. He filmed his journey. So he he took this camera when he went to pick up Kathy from the Chua mother and baby home. And when we met Kathy and she told us this, they were reels of Super 8. And she said, look, you can take all this back to London. And I said, well, that is amazing. Um, because we couldn't see it until we transferred it. So we had it digitized into 4K so we could watch what was there. She said, I think there's footage of um, I think there's footage of the Chewham home. And nobody had ever seen footage of the Chewham home. No. It didn't exist anywhere else. And then there it was in Kathy's little flight case full of letters. So she was, it was amazing finding Kathy. Yeah. We there are very few people who were adopted who have come forward, probably because they don't know they were adopted. A lot of parents didn't tell their children. Mm. And if they told their children, they wouldn't have given them a flight case of documentation like Kathy had. It was, it was really amazing. So we put a call out in um, Irish Central and, you know, kind of Irish American press. And um, we put, we send messages to um, Irish centers around America. I mean, we, we really tried to find people specifically from Chewham who had been adopted to America. Mm. And we got one story back, and that was Kathy. Wow. But it was our dream story because yeah. she had this archive and she had just mm. found a brother and sister in England but had not met them yet. So... <laughs> She laughs now because we chat on the phone quite a lot. 
And she says, you were so funny because you just got onto me straight away, you know, <laughs> and um, I couldn't believe how quickly you got back to me. And and then she said, and your eyes, when I showed you my archive, my box of archive, I your believe eyes it. just popped out of your head. Yeah. I- <laughs> so. I feel that story so deeply. I feel like I would have been like that too. Like I am coming to your house tomorrow. I have to find out everything about this. And the tenacity paid off because it really is such a movie documentary. What part of the story has stayed with you the most? So I'd say there's two things that have stayed with me. One is the ongoing secrecy about this, um, which I felt very strongly because it took three years to make this film. And even when the report had been published and um, there was talk of doing a full excavation, people still couldn't access their own documents. We filmed with Patrick, who was adopted to London. He still couldn't get hold of his adoption records to know whether he'd been legally adopted or not. Um, People still couldn't find out who their fathers were or, in some cases, their mothers. And people have been left with years and years of work to try and find out their own origins and years lost, years where they weren't able to connect with their birth parents or their families in any way. So when Kathy, for example, when she meets her brother and sister, I think it, the bittersweetness of that And also the incredible love that they showed her, absolutely accepted her with open arms and wanted to show her the love that they feel their father would have given her had he known about her. Mm -hmm. And there's something so touching about that. I think sometimes when you watch a film that's tragic or you hear a tragic story, the most, the, the thing that certainly kind of makes me well up the most is actually acts of kindness in those situations. Mm-hmm. And I also felt that it was such a, like the love that Carol and Stephen, Kathy's newfound siblings, showed her was really what, in a way, I suppose, you know, Christianity probably should be about. You know, I mean, when the church talks about love, that's not what the children were shown. And yet, you know, a brother and a sister in their 50s who had had no idea they had this sister suddenly pops up thanks to ancestry dna and they they just give her all this love and accept her and she and carol and kathy are on the phone every week if not every day now i mean you know they found each other late in life and they're you know real sisters that's my hope too is that ancestry will be able to connect many siblings um, with the small hope that parents can be reunited with children, but it feels like the clock is ticking down because this happened so long ago. That's true in relation to Chewham, but I think also ancestry is, well, ancestry, I mean, it's not just ancestry, but I think, you know, DNA, consumer DNA testing is, is also just brushing away a lot of these secrets without even intending to, you know, you can't keep these family secrets anymore. You can't hide people's identity, their origins from them really anymore. Um, And I hope that in the case of the survivors of mother and baby homes, that 
they will be given that right. The, the law in Ireland is is in the process of changing, but it hasn't actually changed yet to enable that. So people are waiting. This is so good. I'm telling you, I cried so hard. I cried so hard. I loved every minute of it. I am so impressed with your team and the hard work they put into it. And also everyone that you interviewed and for their courageousness to tell their personal stories, which I know probably have been very painful, but I have to believe that the greater good will factor in and that people will be more inclined to come forward and, and that love, you know, supersedes all of this. So really well done job. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anything else that you've got coming up that you want to tell us about or will it remain um, under wraps until later? So I'm, I'm developing a documentary at the moment um, with the BBC about the war in Ukraine Um, so that's, I can't talk too much about it at the moment, but, um, it's another deep dive into a, into a very important story. You can also go to Tanya's website, tanyasteven.com, and you can see, uh, trailers for some other projects that she's done. One in particular that I'm obsessed with is called Donor Mom. You will see that there's sort of, uh, layers to all of her projects and they kind of in some way linked to one another. Um, you do extraordinary work. Where can people find you? At my website, Instagram. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time for you to get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's gas, groceries, or dinner with friends, you can start earning cash back. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit, Discover Bank, member FDIC. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Jacques Peterson is my friend. He writes for Daily Mail Australia, and he is host of the unpopular podcast, which you must be listening to. I've roped him into coming on because I've forced him to watch a show on Netflix that was coming out called Byron Bays. This is about a group of friends, artists, influencers in Byron Bay, Australia. I've been obsessed with Byron Bay for quite some time. Had the idea for my own show in that area. And of course, someone beat me to the punch. Jacques is here because he did some deep diving for me. We have a lot to cover. Welcome back to the show. 
Thank you so much for having me back. And I just want to vouch for you and say you absolutely did have the idea first because I remember you reached out to me years ago. You DM me on Instagram. You said, do you know anyone in Byron Bay that has an Instagram following that would be good for this show that I'm working on? So you do deserve credit for that. Thank you very much. Well, I told you I was excited about this show. I didn't know how you were going to take it because as an Australian, would you want to watch a show about a group of people that live by you. It's sort of how I feel about Real Housewives of Orange County. Like, do I want to subject myself myself to watching a show about people who live down the street? Not that you live down the street from Byron Bay, but certainly in your much more of your neck of the woods. So what was the first thing you thought when you heard the concept of a show based in Byron Bay? You know, I didn't think that it was a terrible idea. I immediately thought of The Hills, and we also had a show here years ago called The Shire, which was about the Cronulla Shire in Sydney. It was really bad. That was like a during The Hills heyday, and it was a Hills knockoff, and it was terrible. But I did, I don't know, I'm a little iffy on Netflix reality. I feel like they either get it completely right, and the show is great, like Love is Blind. I'm a big fan of that, or I think that some of their shows are just terrible. So I thought... You know, it could go either way, but I was willing to give it a chance. And then when I saw the trailer, I thought the trailer looked really boring and I didn't tune in until you reached out to me. And now that I, I'm actually so glad that I watched it because I, I I, was very shocked that I actually loved it. And I'm not saying it's a good show, but there was something, <laughs> there was an addictive quality about yeah. it. Yeah. Well, what you said was, I like it. I didn't think the first season was great, but I see possibilities for a second season. And I thought that's so true so many times of a Real Housewives new franchise. Well, I felt like that with the Hills reboot, New Beginnings, because, you know, I'm a big Hills fan, so I had to watch that. And I sat through both seasons of that. And I was just like, you know, there is a good show in here. Like, if you just change out a few things and maybe get rid of this person and put that person in, like, it's going to be really good. And I feel the same about Byron Bay's. I actually said to you that, it gives me somehow season one vibes where you're like, okay, some of these casts, they're a little bit old. Some of them don't work. This is a bit strange. But if we just like shuffle a few pieces around on like the chessboard, like you're going to get the formula right. And this is going to be like one of the best reality shows on Netflix. Especially because once this airs, especially the fact that it's on Netflix, you know that there are going to be a bunch of people that come out of the woodwork. So they actually did try to get some influences. It's funny you mentioned that. They tried to get some legitimate influences. There was one girl that they tried to book on the show called Ruby Tuesday Matthews. I'm assuming that's probably not her real name, although maybe it is, because she's actually born and bred in Byron Bay. So I can see someone being named Ruby Tuesday Matthews if they're actually from Byron Bay. And she does have a legitimate following and she's come out as a really outspoken critic. She tried out the show and then she, I don't know if it was the, the backlash towards the casting that that turned her off. But yeah, then all the people, because I did a deep dive on all of them, none of them had good Instagram followings except for one, which we're going to get to, which is questionable. But I do agree that, yeah, maybe some real influences are going to come along now because I, it's a, it's a weird cast of people that they have. You're a bit like, oh, really? <laughs> well, first explain to us who are unfamiliar with the regions within Australia. What do we need to know about Byron Bay? Okay, well, I've actually been to Byron Bay back in the day. It's a beautiful coastal town. Uh, It's really picturesque. It's by the beach. It did used to have a hippie culture. Now it's been infiltrated. It's sort of been gentrified. A lot of celebrities have, have gone there and moved there. Like in Australia, you're constantly hearing about 
local celebrities here, like, you know, buying homes there. And it's the most expensive property market now in Australia, I believe. I think it surpassed Sydney and Sydney's very expensive. So, uh, and the Hemsworths really, really put it on the map globally because Chris Hemsworth and his wife built, I wouldn't even call it a home. I would call it a compound. I mean, it looks like a shopping mall in Byron Bay. It's enormous. And then they have all of their Hollywood friends go there, like, yeah, you know, Matt Damon and everything. So, I guess there's a little bit of a clash about it being gentrified and commercialised and it's not, you know, the the hippie town that it once was because it has kind of been taken over by a lot of influencers and and Hollywood types and people have been priced out of the market now, like regular people. You know who else lives in Byron Bay? Who? Alex McCord, season one, Real Housewives of New York. Of course, that makes a lot of sense. You know, there's a lot of, there There are a few little towns around Byron Bay, like there's Tweed Heads and there's some other places that they're not quite as expensive, but they're, they're close to it. So all around there, it has basically become the hotspot in Australia. And, uh, you know, people complain about, you know, celebrities moving there and, oh my God, you know, when Byron Bay's happened, there was there were protests against the show because people said, oh, we don't want the show here. It's going to ruin the town. But it's like, you know, it's already quote unquote ruined. Like the celebrities <laughs> have already, the yeah. celebrities have already come in. Like you're just delaying the inevitable. And, you know, I thought that the, the protests were really quite overblown and it's a shame. It is a shame for the people that, you know, live there all their lives and they're sort of being priced out. That sucks, but it's also, you know, shit happens. There's plenty of beautiful places around Australia that are undiscovered gems. Uh, Yeah. So let's go through some of the cast because they're all quite interesting. Some of them, I think, have much more staying staying power than the others. And there's one in particular that I've got a lot of questions about. So let's start at the top. Jade Kevin Foster is an influencer. He claims to have 1.2 million real followers. But he's not from Byron Bay. He's from the Gold Coast. Well, somebody somebody messaged me and they told me that Jade's real name is actually Jake and his surname is probably different as well. What? So he changed, he went from Jake to Jade, allegedly. That's a DM that I got. I can't confirm it, but it sounds plausible because I, I can't imagine wow. someone... I Jake is more of a Gold Coast name than Jade. So I think he changed it. Jake is more Gold Coast. I would think that Jade is more of a Gold Coast name. Uh, I don't know. J- Jade could be a hippie name. I mean, I don't know. It depends. Oh, but I, see. I, yeah. Because Jade would be more of like an artist, free spirit kind of vibe. That's what I'm getting. <laughs> okay. So did he change his name before Byron Bay's or? Yeah, he, he changed it before Byron Bay's. I think when he decided to create this you know, HBO fake famous influencer profile that, you know, big persona. Uh, I think he changed his name and and everything. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. So I, that was the first thing that jumped out at me is that this is almost like a true crime reality show crossover because I really need to get to the bottom of whether or not these followers are for real or not. What is, wh- what do you know to be true about his following? Okay. Well, I have to say that you know, I see a lot of Instagram profiles and celebrity profiles, you know, working in tabloids and media. We always, you know, find stories on Instagram now. And I saw his profile before Byron Bay's. I don't know if it's because he was part of the cast announcement or if I came across his profile in some other way, but I remember going 1.2 million, what? And then I scrolled through the profile and I'm like, these followers aren't real. Like, this is a fake profile. The second that I saw it, and then that actually becomes a storyline on the show, which is 
it's probably the juiciest storyline, I think, of the season. And, uh, you know, one of the characters on the show, Alex, he does like a, a social blade kind of audit of Jade's account. And it says that his followers are primarily from Turkey, Iran, and India. And then Random. I went and, yeah, and that's where you buy a lot of fake followers. And then I went and did the, uh, you know, the auditing myself just to like double check. And yes, that is where all of the followers are. There was a point where Jade suddenly gained, like he had very suspicious activity on his account. Like you'd see no movement on his account. And then one day he had, he gained 1.3 million followers in a day. And then the next day he lost the 1.3 million, which I think is probably because the the Instagram algorithm has detected that fake. Yeah. And removed them. So he had a lot of things like that. He also, I checked his Twitter it was the same thing. He had had like no followers on Twitter and then had bought like 300,000 and then he like suddenly lost like, you know, a huge amount as well. So they're absolutely all fake. Uh, when I posted about it on Instagram, I had people reach out to me. I had a friend contact me who is a club promoter and he said that back in 2018, Jade called up the club going, hey, I'm a big influencer. Can I get, you know, free free drinks and, you know, bottle service for the night and free entry. And he sent over his media kit and uh, they felt like the media kit, they looked at it and they thought it was doctored. They thought it was fake with fake insights and everything. And he actually sent me the media kit. And on, on the media kit where it breaks everything down, it has your audience demographics. And Jade had listed his audience demographics as number one, the most followers from the US, followed by Australia and then New Zealand. But that's not true because we've done the social blade and we know the followers are actually bought from Turkey, Iran and India. So absolutely his following is fake. It's estimated that around 80-something percent of it is fake. Uh, He claims that he originally got his followers because he took a photo with Kim Kardashian about 10 years ago and that she posted it and that's where he got his followers from. And maybe he did get a small following from that. But I mean, yeah, the rest is fake because he's not even, he's not even verified on Instagram. He doesn't have a blue tick. Whereas you can get a blue tick on Instagram with like 20,000 followers. So if you, you are not verified at 1.2 billion, it's pretty bad. So what was he doing with Kim Kardashian? What was the picture of? Are they oh. at like like a mall outside of the pet store? Like what, what what happened? A Gold Coast a Gold Coast mall shopping event. She's she was probably here back in the day when she was still you know in Australia. The Kardashians were really big here for a while, and they actually had like an exclusive. You know when they were doing all those tacky. I think in the US they did like a line with Sears, or they had to <laughs> right. deal with them. They had something like that here in a shopping mall, and Kim had her sort of. Uh, uh, drugstore perfume. So it was like an appearance for that, like launching a perfume or something. And he showed up and did the meet and greet because I saw the picture and it's it's old school Kim. It's pre-Kanye Kim. <laughs> so he shows up and I think that all of the, the cast are sort of looking at him like, why did you move from the Gold Coast? And we're supposed to invite you to our parties now. It seemed highly unlikely. It seemed like in Byron Bay, you have these small groups of friends and he was absolutely an outsider. And I wanted to run through some of the other cast members because they do have, it seems, more connections with one another. Are you ready? Yep. Okay, L Watson. 
I, I loved Elle. Uh, I looked, again, I looked her up. She does not have many followers at all. She had about 3,000 followers. It's, it's funny because the show really built it. Like Netflix were like, you know, it's a peek into the lives of these glamorous influencers in Byron Bay. And literally none of the cast have any followers except Jade Kevin Foster, who bought all of his from <laughs> India. So, <laughs> but uh, Elle's an interesting character. She is kind of one of the villains of the season. She's best friends with this guy, uh, Nathan, who becomes sort of the male love interest of the show. And they have a, uh, their storyline is a bit like, well, does she have more feelings for Nathan, even though she has a boyfriend? Because she seems jealous of a, a girl that Nathan's dating. And she makes a lot of bitchy comments to this, this new girl, Sarah, that comes into the scene. And I loved Elle. I thought she was really good on the show like she just she had that bitchiness that you want on a show like this Mm -hmm. uh because some of the other girls were a little bit I think some of the other girls held back a bit I think that Elle like did not bite her tongue and she had this she has this big very quite big hair big long flowing hair and it really popped on camera it was very striking oh it's like she has too much hair I mean (laughs) I, I say this as somebody with horse hair myself like you have to get it thinned out um it's it's like too big for her body. And also Nathan's her roommate and she's openly flirting with him in front of her boyfriend. And Nathan, I mean, sometimes he kind of flirts with her back, but he's giving her a roll of the eyeball and she doesn't even seem to care. She just makes it seem like all she wants to do is just go into a room and make out with Nathan, even though the boyfriend's right there. Were you amused by that as much as I was? Yeah, and I it felt real. I didn't really... I know sometimes the these cast members, they they pretend to do something like that. Maybe it was editing, but I don't think that they were like trying to fake a thing. I think there was like something there between them. If Maybe she's just very territorial and protective of her friends and it came through on the editing like she was secretly in love with him, but uh, I, I was into it. I thought it was juicy. Yeah, I, I got the impression like a couple late nights, maybe they made out. And that's like their deep, dark secret. And now she's like, so really you want to sleep with someone else, even though you and I sleep together sometimes, even though she's in front of her boyfriend. It seemed very relatable to like people in their 20s for sure. Okay, then we have Hannah. Hannah and her mom own a clothing company and it's apparently very popular in Australia. Is that true? Uh, Look, I'm not that familiar with women's fashion, but I did look up their website and it did look like it was really successful because it wasn't just a clothing store. I believe they are, I think we saw it early in the season because they had a party there. They have this really beautiful home. It looks very expensive. It's all white. It's sort of like near the beach. And I think you can, I might be wrong, but I think you can Airbnb it or you can rent it for functions or something. So I think they have like their fingers in a few different pies. And then with the clothing line, I think they have this like property that they must rent out and use. And she has apparently been Hannah has apparently been in Byron Bay. She's not born and bred there, but she's been there for around 10 years. So she's a little bit more of a local. Nathan, as we mentioned, everybody goes crazy for Nathan. I don't really see the sex appeal. What did you think of him? Okay, two things. I just want to say one thing quickly on Hannah that I think Hannah is a superstar and I think she was one of the best parts of the show. Uh, She's amazing. I pray that she's back for the next season. Nathan, uh, so he got to fame here. Okay, he does have an Instagram following, 30K, not that impressive, but more than some of the other castmates. And that is because he was on The Bachelorette and then he appeared on Bachelor in Paradise. He was such a brat on both of those shows. Not uh, a shock, he's on the, not a shock. Yeah. He's, well, he's on the younger side. So I think currently, I think he's 26. I think he's about to turn 27. But when he was on 
The Bachelorette first, he might have been like 24. So he was just a very immature mm. kind of party boy, goofball. And uh, But I really liked him on Byron Bay's. I thought he's had a makeover, by the way, like a Byron makeover because he did not look <laughs> like this when he was on The Bachelor. And no, I feel like- how did he look different? He he's dyed his hair now. He's dyed his hair. He's got more of a tan. He's wearing like more jewelry and stuff. I noticed. Oh, um, he's got he's got a little bit more style. And uh, I thought he was really good on the show. I, I was when I saw that they cast him, and they also cast another guy, Elias, which I'm sure we'll get to, who shot to fame on Love Island, Australia. So these two sort of reality rejects, and I wasn't <laughs> sure how they would go on on this Byron Bay show, but I. They kind of had like two of the biggest storylines. So I'm into it. I think if they're casting season two, bring Nathan back for sure. So Nathan basically got a Croy Beerman makeover to assimilate into the Byron Bay lifestyle. Yeah, he did. And I'm I do wonder though, did he just move to Byron Bay uh for this show? Did he hear, oh hey, we're trying to get a show together? Absolutely. But you know, people are there are people that are moving there legitimately. Like legitimately, because it's like I often see stories here in the media of, you know, this person, TV personality, whoever, you know, has just bought a place in Byron Bay. Although I will say, I don't know how Nathan, unless he has very rich parents, could afford to live there because it is very expensive. Like Mm. we just had another bachelor reject buy a home in Byron Bay, but she is kind of like our version of, you know, like a Rachel Lindsay or a or a uh, Caitlin Brewster, like she's super successful. She's got her own like radio show and, you know, she's doing big influencer. I don't know how Nathan Favreau, who is not a successful influencer or anything, could afford to live in Byron Bay unless, unless he could be living in like Tweed Heads or a neighbouring kind of town that's more affordable and then coming into Byron to film. I actually, sorry to keep rambling, but I now that I think about it, I just had this thought. I wonder if they even filmed all of their scenes in Byron Bay because apparently a lot of local businesses that were sort of protesting the show and going, keep Netflix out of our town, wouldn't let them shoot at places. So I wonder if they just shot at, you know, Tweed Heads and other beachy places outside of Byron Bay and then just passed it off as Byron Bay for the show. It's possible. And uh, that's an idiotic way of thinking because if anything, it makes me want to fly and visit Byron Bay. So... they, they don't want that, though. They're trying to act. They're like, we don't want the outsiders. We don't want the blow-ins. But I just think, you know what? Just lean into it. Have the tourism sure. boom. Go for it. Like, get your... If your restaurant is on... If your little cafe, mm-hmm. your average little cafe is on a fucking Netflix show worldwide in this beautiful Preach. town of Byron yes. Bay, do you know how many people are going to go to that cafe? Like, you'll yeah. be seeing dollar signs. Well, I'm about to show up. I'm going to tell you that much. Okay, we mentioned Sarah. Sarah is also from the Gold Coast, and she's a singer. And she shows up, and she meets with Alex, who's somewhat of a talent manager. And she discusses with him how she's moved to the area to assimilate into the artist culture and really make a go of her career. Is that something that someone would do in Australia if you were a sophisticated, a talented singer-songwriter? Is that the place you would move to? No, you would move to one of the major cities like Sydney or Melbourne. Although Interesting. Okay. in her defense, she did, when she sang, she had this, you know, she did like an indie kind of thing and may, maybe there is a music scene there, but I can't imagine someone moving specifically there to get, what, a record deal or something? Mm-hmm. Like it was very much for the show. And she was also from the Gold Coast, like Jade, Kevin Foster. And it was very strange that they picked two people that don't know each other 
from the Gold Coast to come into this show. And it was also one too many. Like I messaged you and I'm like, I get from a narrative perspective, let's get one person that is an outsider to this scene and that's coming in and we can follow them and they, they're our point of entry and you'll know, we see can they assimilate into this close-knit community or not. Totally makes sense, but you don't need two characters doing that. You only need one. And Sarah even if her whole singing thing is kind of, I mean, I think she really is a singer, but even if the her reason for moving there was just created for the show, she, I think, really fit in well with the cast and, like, was was sort of an, like, she felt like a natural integration, whereas Jade Kevin Foster, no, he it was like, like this is, this yeah. is beyond, like, this makes no sense. He doesn't know any of them. I mean, within, I think it was, like, by episode two, Jade Kevin Foster's, like, you know, uh, I think uh, Alex, you know, talked like this to, you know, my friend Jess and I'm not going to have it. It's like you you filmed one scene with her. You don't even, he doesn't live in Byron Bay, by the way. He still lives on the Gold Coast. He's back on the Gold Coast. So that he somehow, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he basically, I would say, knowing his history with the fake Instagram followers, he's essentially scammed his way onto his own Netflix show. And it's well, like incredible. I can't actually hate him for that. I can't actually hate him for that. I mean, that's kind of genius, isn't it? It is, but it's, you know, I think, yeah, look, I think I'm sure there's people that are a bit jealous, like, God, why didn't I think of doing this first? But, you know, you are ripping people off from my, if you're saying I have this much of a following and if you give me free this and that, you know, I'm going to be able to promote your business, whatever it is, even if it's free drinks or your clothing line. And then someone's like giving you their stuff and they're getting ripped off. Like that's true. You're a low key con artist. Not even low key, you're <laughs> high key. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know if that exists. Then you've got this uh, a group of artists that are on the show. Um, Simba, <laughs> he doesn't fit in at all. He's like a real artist, somebody you would meet in New York, like in uh, some art gallery. By the way, profoundly, profoundly talented, beautiful artwork, but it just seems like it's a show about young influencers that would go out and have like cosmopolitans and then you have Simba who seems like he would like smoke hiawasa or something and then go and paint for hours he doesn't seem to fit in is it me yes yeah, Simba and Kai I think and uh they yeah and I do think they actually no Kai was a local he was born and bred there so I think it's good to get you want to try like he wasn't a main character so I think it's fine to have those people as like side side characters because they really uh, Byron Bay. And the thing is that Byron Bay does have that whole pretentious art scene to it. Like Simba, they did a flashback of him and he was dressed in a business suit in like Melbourne. Uh, and he's like, I left the corporate world, uh, you know, for Byron Bay. And now he's like hippie doing ayahuasca and, uh, yeah. you know, sound baths, whatever they do up there. <laughs> exactly. and, I th- and I think that's, uh, I think that's good to have on the show because I think it captures that kind of, uh, that pretentious sort of rich hippie thing, you know, mm-hmm. where it's like a, a sort of a wannabe influencer coming in and thinking they're spiritual because, you know, they're waving a crystal around. So I actually liked that. I just, I don't want to see them as a main character. I mean, we have Hannah, Hannah is like that and she's a main character. So she's enough. And then the others, the others are like, you know, side things, which is fine. Yeah. One of the castmates says she's not exactly a spiritualist because she kind of puts this impression out that she's almost like a medium that meets like a Reiki healer. Elias is so cute. 
but he's sort of boring. Is he right for this show? Okay, uh, Elias, I hate him. I was a huge (laughs) fan of Love Island Australia season one. Elias, Elias, whatever his name is, he was my least favorite on there. He was so pretentious when uh, there was a, there was a scene where he falls out with Nathan and Nathan says stuff like, you, you know, bro, I think you're totally like full of yourself. He absolutely is. He was actually on Love Island. He had like long hair, this wanky long hair. Mm. And uh, he really, he was like a Justin Bobby. He was like Australia's Justin Bobby. Like no, absolutely oh no depth to you, whatever. But you think that you're like spiritual because you rode a, mi- a motorcycle, you know, and you <laughs> right. your hair out. Right. Like he is so embarrassing. But with that said, I think that he fits Byron Bay because he does have that pretentious sort of like want to be spiritual influencer. He even made some comments on the show about how, um, you know, I don't, I do things my own way and I, I don't know, like I'm he's just he's awful and I was totally on Nathan's side when they had their falling out but with that said I do think he's good on Byron Bay he's as terrible as he is you asked me what I would rate the show uh I I don't know I really liked it like for okay in terms of trashy reality tv maybe like a seven like I think people should give it a go and like it has like if you like the hills you'll like this I think tell everybody where they can listen to you and where they can find you Yes, you can find my podcast, Unpopular with Jacques Peterson. Just find me on social media if you want to find the link tree. So it is at Unpopular JP on Twitter and Instagram. And I cover, it's all like contrarian opinions on reality TV and pop culture and very unfiltered. So if that's down your alley, uh, check it out, guys. And why are you not on The Bachelor Australia? I don't know why I'm not on a show here. When I was looking at, Byron Bay's. I'm like, how am I not on this? But fucking Jay Kevin Foster is like, Jesus <laughs> Christ. But, you know, pray for me. Maybe one day it'll happen. <laughs> I, I, I absolutely am praying for you. Well, thank you again. Thanks, Kate. The amazing Kate Casey. I want to thank my great guests, Tanya and Jacques, and remind you to click subscribe, leave a five star review, join the Facebook group Reality Life with Kate Casey. Check me out on Instagram at at KKCCA. You can find me on Twitter at at Kate Casey. You can find me on TikTok at it's Kate Casey, Cameo Kate Casey. And finally, on Patreon, where I have bonus episodes, go to patreon.com backslash Kate Casey. Hope that you have a great rest of your week, and I look forward to catching up with you on Friday. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
you can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Wondery Kids Plus on Apple Podcasts today.